The episode that you're about to listen to was originally recorded and released in April 2020 on the Just Another Fanboy podcast feed. Feedback can be sent to justanotherfanboy at gmail.com, despite what I say when I close out the episode. And with that out of the way, welcome to Just Another Fanboy Reads Madman Comics. The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with me, just a regular guy talking about all the things I love, such as comics, movies, television, music, and books. So yeah, proceed at your own risk. Welcome to another episode of Just Another Fanboy. I'm your host, Steven, and today we continue. We move on. We keep moving. We go forward on our journey through Madman by Mike Allred. This is issue number three that we're going to talk about today from Tundra. May of 1992, the original trilogy that they refer to as the Oddity Odyssey. And before we get started, let's do a little catch up. Let's catch us all up. On where we were previously, Frank was sent from Snap City to Buzztown to find Dr. Gillespie Flem, the only man alive who could save Frank's friend, Dr. Boyford, who had been the victim of a hit and run and now sleeps on the edge of death and frozen in Frank's deep freeze or coffin freezer, whatever you want to call him. Boyford, along with Flem, had been working for an evil man named Monstat, who was looking for the key to immortality. Flem had left long ago, seeing the evil in Mondstadt, but Boyford had waited until it was too late to see the error of his ways and may very well pay for it with his life. Frank eventually finds Dr. Flem, but not before foiling the attempted murder of Buzztown's mayor. That all happened in issue number one. Flem agrees to help, but first they have to take care of a pack of angry clones, clones of Dr. Flem that have gone a bit off. And so they do just that. And with all that now out of the way, Frank and Dr. Flem, well, they hopped into an open boxcar of a moving train, which was bound for Snap City. And so we open issue number three with Frank. He's sleeping, sitting up in the boxcar of the train. Behind him is the image of a superhero striking a super pose. Frank appears to be dreaming of this unknown hero who has the same exclamation bolt symbol on his chest that Frank has. Frank had fallen asleep writing in his journal, and thanks to a text box, we are allowed to read along. Without dreams and nightmares, sleep would be a nightly dose of death. I like dreams, and I know I have to sleep, but it scares me. There's no guarantee that I'll wake up. I become vulnerable to anything. While I indulge in the world of dream, another world exists, a far more dangerous world, the waking world, the real world, where death is inevitable. I deny death. I won't believe in death until it happens to me. Maybe I watch too much television. As the train slows, rolling into Snap City, Frank is jolted awake. He and Flem leap from the train and are soon chased from the rail yard by a man with a bat. They arrive at Frank's place, scoping it out from across the street, where Frank notices one of Mondstadt's men sitting in a car out front of Frank's building. 
Frank recognizes him because it's the same guy whose eye Frank had plucked out and eaten back in issue number one. He decides to use an alternate entrance, and soon Frank and Dr. Flem are climbing from some sort of duct on the floor of Frank's place, which again, as I've mentioned before, looks like a storage room in a basement of some building. Well, the building, the building where Frank's place is, which again, looks like a storage room. They pull Dr. Boyford from the freezer and Flem gets to work, telling Frank that he'll need sugar, salt, flour, thumbtacks, 9-volt batteries, and Hot Wheels tracks. Despite the strangeness of the recipe, it works, and soon Boyford is alive and no worse for wear, except for a broken arm and a section from the top of his skull, which has been removed. See, Boyford is completely bald, and there's just this strip across the top of his head, probably the size of a playing card, that's just open and exposed. It was just removed from his head, and you can see Boyford's brain. Flem sets Boyford's arm and puts it in a cast as Boyford tells his story. It's here that I got a bit confused just for a second. See, I hadn't realized reading this again. Maybe I would have realized it reading it for the very first time, but even when I read it, even when I read these two, these first three issues, the first time, I had already read Madman Comics. I had read previous, previous, not previous, subsequent issues. I had been reading the Dark Horse books before I went back and got these back issues. So for me, even reading these for the first time, Frank was always Frank. But as I'm reading this again, it becomes quite clear that this is the first time this scene right here as Boyford is brought back to life and he sees Frank and he calls him Frank, that Frank's like, Frank, who's Frank? They have never mentioned his name so far in this book. Two and a half issues, nothing. And it never dawned on me. It didn't hit me at all. And frankly, I had to go back to the first issue because I'm just, I'm just so used to him being Frank that it threw me off for a moment that he didn't know his name. But sure enough, back in issue one, as Frank is placing Boyford in the freezer, he's saying, everything can be set straight and you can help me find out who I am and what has happened to me. So really, Frank has been running on blind faith this entire time. He has no idea who he is, why he looks the way he looks, and why he's wearing the costume. But this is where we learn it all, right along with Frank. Our tale begins when someone brings Boyford Frank's corpse. Boyford used to be a police coroner, and this was a friend of his from back in the day who comes across this accident, a road accident, a car accident, in which he finds Frank dead, and he brings his corpse to Boyford. And then, of course, Boyford brings him back to life. Frank's mind, as Boyford puts it, was a clean slate when he was brought back to life, but he learned at an incredible rate, reaching a university level of intelligence in just two weeks. The name Frank Einstein comes from Boyford's artistic and intellectual heroes, Frank Sinatra and Albert Einstein. And between you and me, the readers of the book, Frank Einstein, sure sounds a lot like Frankenstein. And that was, you know, I mentioned it before, that was on purpose. Within a month, it became apparent that Frank had a certain level of psychic ability. Randomly, Frank could touch someone and read their thoughts, sense their emotions, or see their future. So Boyford helps get Frank set up with his own business as a psychic. Now, all this time, Frank's walking around in regular clothes. He does somewhat look like a walking corpse. His skin is gray. His face is kind of patchwork with stitching. And he's got these two bolts 
coming out of his neck. Now, down the, down the hallway from where Frank's business is set up is a woman, a woman working in another office. This is Joe. And right away, Frank begins to pine for her. But as he starts to fall in love with Joe, he starts to understand really kind of how he looks to other people. And in a fit of, I guess, self-revulsion, he pulls these bolts from out of his neck. Boyford referred to these as input receivers and says that Frank removed them from his neck before they could completely heal and dissolve. This, pulling these bolts from his neck, caused Frank to regress. And Boyford, who had begun to realize that Mr. Mondstadt might very well be more than a little evil, had to bring Frank back to his home lab for intensive self-esteem therapy. It was then that they discovered Frank's first memory of his previous life, Frank's father coming home from work with a stack of comics featuring the hero, Mr. Excitement. After Boyford allowed Frank to fashion a lab suit into a Mr. Excitement costume, he found that when Frank wore it, he was brimming with self-esteem and confidence. And so it was time for Frank to go back out on his own. In fact, as Frank is in the hallway outside his office, flirting with Joe, who, yes, despite his appearance, is flirting back, Boyford was inside phoning Mondstadt to tell him that he was done. Or in his own words, listen, you filthy, disgusting pile of festering bacteria. I'm through with you. I refuse to continue having anything to do with your vile, evil ways. This, of course, gives Mondstadt all the reason he needed to run Boyford over with a car. This happens right in front of Frank, and the shock of seeing his friend run down was more than Frank was prepared for. And though, as Boyford tells his tale, some of the pieces fall back into place for Frank, he still can't look at his own face in the mirror. They show him pulling his mask off, and to him, he's looking at a skull with eyeballs. Frank decides that he needs to get the rest of Boyford's journals from Mondstadt. He got the one in issue number one, and he threw it into a sewer, but just to be safe, he sets out to grab the rest. As Frank is trying to break into Mondstadt's place, he is intercepted by Arnie, the Welcher, the goon from issue one who didn't leave town like he told Frank he would. Frank is not at all happy to see him. Arnie has a machine gun in each hand. He's got like an M16 in one hand and an Uzi in the other, and he opens fire, just sprays the room as Frank leaps at him, screaming that he's going to kill Arnie. It gets a little rough here. As Frank pokes Arnie in the eyes, takes one of the guns from him, smacks Arnie across the face with it, and then in his rage, he takes this M16 and he uses the barrel of the rifle to pull Arnie's heart from his chest. Frank throws Arnie's heart against the wall, then jumps up and down on it before finally coming to his senses. Frank at this point is feeling fairly horrified. He mentions in one of the previous issues that he had, we, we learned in issue one that he has killed before. The whole thing that kind of started these goons coming after Frank in the first place is because he killed one of their goon colleagues and he feels horrible about it and he promises never to kill anybody again. And here he is ripping somebody's heart out and jumping up and down on it. And he's not feeling all that great about it. A big, just giant sense of guilt washes over him. Well, while this is happening, the one-eyed goon, the guy whose eye he plucked out, he comes walking into the room from behind Frank and captures him, tying him up. And then he calls the boss. He takes Frank to Mondstadt's skyscraper all the way up to the penthouse where we find that Frank isn't the only captive. They've got Joe as well. If you remember from issue one, 
Frank is, is he got he got the journal. He's running from the goons in Mondstadt. And Joe shows up in a cab. We don't quite understand who she is at that point, only that Frank seems to have some infatuation with her that even he is unaware of as, well, he's, he's aware of it, but he doesn't quite understand why and where it comes from. And she shows up on the scene. She sees him throw the journal into the sewer and she goes in after it. And when she pulls it out of the, it's a, it's a, like a storm drain. One of Mondstadt's goons is there. And that's the last we see of Joe until this issue here. She's up in Mondstadt's penthouse and she's strapped to a chair, a very, very high-backed chair. The one-eyed goon takes Frank's mask off and Mondstadt tells him to put the mask on to spare them the sight of his hideous face. And that's when we hear Joe, don't listen to them, Frank. I think you're beautiful. Honest, says Frank. Gee whiz, I think you're beautiful too. I just, I love, despite the fact that he just, it just a couple of pages previous, ripped a man's heart out. I just, Frank just seems like such a beaver cleaver kind of guy sometimes. They take Frank and they strap him to the back of the chair, the same chair that Joe is tied to. So she's sitting in the chair. He's sitting on the floor behind it. So they're kind of back to back. But of course, he's sitting down on the floor and she's sitting up in the chair. Mondstadt at this point tells them that he'll let them both go if they tell him what he needs to know. See, he's got all these journals now. He's got everything, even the missing journal, and he's used everything in the journals to create a machine that'll make him immortal. But the journal that Frank originally took and threw into the storm drain, he ripped out a couple of pages. And so Mondstadt doesn't quite have everything, and he wants to know what was missing so he can finish the process. A couple of new goons arrive with Flem and Boyford, who they found creeping about outside. Mondstadt threatens to kill Joe, and Dr. Flem agrees to give him the missing pieces of the formula, which are this, two drops of vanilla extract. Then, just an injection into the heart every two years, and he'll live forever. But to bring the dead back to life, he has to include a jolt with the brain probe during the injection. Mondstadt agrees to let them go after they prove the formula works. By bringing Joe back to life, he then orders one of the goons to kill her. That's when Frank springs into action, still strapped to the back of Joe's chair, which again, as I said, has a very tall back. He rocks forward as the goon comes up from behind Joe. So the goon is coming toward Frank. Frank is eyeballing the goon. They're face to face, right? Because again, Frank is strapped to the back of the chair. So he rocks forward and he launches himself along with Joe and the chair and rams the goon right through the window. And he falls to his death. So there's another person that Frank kills. Frank grabs up a glass shard from the broken window, cuts himself free, and then launches it at the one-eyed goon who has opened fire. The goon, now disarmed, follows Mondstadt up the stairs and escapes. Frank follows but finds himself stopped by an iron door that Mondstadt and his goon have locked behind them. So using his special yo-yo like a grappling hook, he goes out the window and swings up onto the roof. Joe watches him go, calling out, I think you're astoundingly heroic. 
Mondstadt and his goon are taking off from the roof in a helicopter. Using his yo-yo once again like Batman, he wraps it around one of the chopper's skids and grasping the line tightly in his hands, he's pulled along into the air. Frank pulls himself up to the chopper and swings around from side to side as Mondstadt and his goon shoot at him until finally, with a burst of superhuman strength, Frank pulls the goon's door from the chopper. This surprises even Frank and he calls out, I am astoundingly heroic. Frank flips under the chopper, pops up on Mondstadt's side, and rips his door from the chopper as well, only to see the two bad guys leap from the helicopter with parachutes on. Frank abandons the chopper and leaps after the two men, landing on Mondstadt's chute. Mondstadt opens fire and Frank falls. He plummets to the earth, falling atop a circus tent, ripping through, and suddenly finds himself in the middle of a trapeze act and becoming part of it. The crowd gasps in awe. Frank takes a bow, then, grabbing a rope, swings from the trapeze platform to the ground where he climbs into a large cannon and fires himself at Mondstadt and the one-eyed goon. He punches the goon in his one eye as he soars by and grabs onto Mondstadt's leg. The two struggle, and Mondstadt manages to rip open the top of Frank's mask, exposing his hair and creating the look that Frank will keep throughout the rest of the book. So if you've ever seen pictures of Madman, if you ever go out on the internet and you look up Mike Allred's Madman, you're going to see a certain look. He's got an all-over costume that covers every inch of his body except for the top of his head where his hair comes out. Well, up to this point, he's wearing, he's still wearing that full costume, but the mask, it's like Spider-Man's mask. It covers his entire head. But due to this accident, he continues that look from there on out. So in the end, the runaway helicopter, remember they jumped out of a helicopter. It's still out there flying around all willy-nilly. It makes its way around and starts careening towards Mondstadt and Frank as they dangle from Mondstadt's parachute. And they're, they're fighting, right? They're fighting as they're falling, which is one of those things that I always find really quite annoying. But in this case, they're, they're on a parachute. It kind of makes sense. Frank leaps away at the last second as the chopper slams into Mondstadt, taking him with it into a nearby lake. Frank ties up the one-eyed goon and runs to the lake and finds nothing but the sinking helicopter. Suddenly, a man in a strange outfit arrives. He's wearing like a helmet with two antennas sticking out the top. He's got these big shoulder pads and he's wearing goggles. And he introduces himself as a member of the Big Brother Security Service. Frank explains what happened and the security agent calls for divers. And there's this really fun little moment where Frank is, he's patiently waiting at the lake shore, while the divers are down looking for evidence of Mondstadt's body, you know, to make sure that Mondstadt is actually down there. And he's crouched there at the lake shore, and he's patiently skipping stones across the lake. And one of the stones, we watch it as it pops across the lake surface, pop, pop, pop. And it just so happens to be the, the, one of the divers is coming up to the surface, and he is in the path of this skipping stone. And so the stone smacks him right in the head as he comes to the surface. There's no sign of Mondstadt at the bottom of the lake. The wreckage has stirred up a lot of mud, and the Big Brother security agent guesses that the helicopter must have shoved Mondstadt 20 feet deep into the mud. Frank, who's not altogether satisfied, he accepts the theory and heads back to the circus where Flem and Boyford are waiting for him. Where's Joe? Frank asks. That's when she arrives. They run to each other, a heart shining brightly between them, and Frank lifts her into the air. She removes his mask, which worries him at first, but then he smiles 
as the two hold each other. You really like me, Joe? Frank asks. My scars don't repulse you? Frank, Joe replies, I've had a crush on you since the day I met you, and I think your scars are kind of rugged and charming. You're the sweetest man I've ever met. And then she plants him a big smooch on the cheek. They're interrupted when a young boy arrives and asks Frank for his autograph. The ringmaster then arrives with others from the circus to offer Frank a job. The circus folk are a bit strange looking, more strange looking than your average circus folk. The ringmaster has a pair of small horns poking out of his forehead. He looks kind of devilish. The muscle man has no skin. You can see all his muscles. So yes, he's a strong man, but you almost feel like the reason they call him Muscle Man is because you can see all his muscles. There's an alien-looking dude with a third eyeball on the end of a stalk, which is coming out of the guy's forehead. There's a woman with a cat's head and a girl with an elephant's trunk. They all look rather weird. Frank likes the idea of joining the circus, but declines because, as he says, I've got a heavy agenda right now. I'm going to need some time to take things slow. Taste the juices of life. He agrees, however, to get back with the man. And so as the issue ends, as the three-issue run ends, Frank and Joe walk through the crowd hand in hand, and Frank asks her, are you doing anything tonight? And that's it. That's the conclusion of the first big madman story. Three issues, the oddity odyssey, and the circus troupe makes a return. I can't remember if it happens in... The next series, which is also just three issues and, and also comes out from Tundra, or if we see them in the Dark Horse series, I feel like it's in the Dark Horse series. He he goes on an adventure of some sort in the next three issues of the second series, and then in the Dark Horse, if I'm remembering correctly, he comes back to the circus to to go traveling with them. It's such a good book. There's so much more fun stuff coming. First of all, everything moving forward will be in colors done by uh, Mike's wife, Laura Allred. And her colors just work so well with Allred's art. It's just a match made in heaven. And he eventually, at, at one point, when, he get, when the book gets over to Dark Horse, Hellboy is in the issue at one point. I think when he goes to, when they move the book over to Image Comics, Savage Dragon makes an appearance. He's just, it's just a fun book. And again, Frank is so... There's just such this, this, like this flip side to Frank. On the one hand, he's ripping people's hearts out. On the other hand, he sounds like freaking Beaver Cleaver, you know? He just seems like such an innocent. He just, he was literally, as far as he was concerned, as far as he knows in his brain, because most of his memories were gone, he, he was just born not that long ago, just weeks ago, maybe even a month or two. And he's trying to come to terms with who he is. And are these bouts of rage that causes him to hurt people, kill people? Is that something from his past? We don't know yet at this point. And frankly, I'm not even 100% sure. Because again, I didn't finish the Dark Horse series. I started to read the Image series and never finished it. But I'm pretty sure there's a whole portion at the end of the Dark Horse series where we learn more about who Madman was before he died. And what he did for a living and, and, and all that. I do recall that this next series, the next three issues are kind of weird. He runs into some weird dudes, these individuals that come up to him and like the first guy that's, I am one of three. And he meets another guy that's like, I am two of three. And one of them, if I remember correctly, looks like Clint Eastwood. He also at one point encounters an alien with such a wonderful name. 
The alien comes from the planet Hoople, and its name is Mott. Yes, Mott the Hoople. That's a band, if anybody's unsure. I couldn't tell you any of their hits, though, off the top of my head. But I, I often wonder if Mike Allred was a, was a fan or if he just found it funny to name an alien that. Anyway, that's where we're going, folks. Three issues down. We got another series to go. Three issues. Then we'll jump into Dark Horse. Then we'll jump into Image. And then we'll be done. We're only talking about another, I don't know, 50 episodes. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But until then, my name is Steven and I'm just another fanboy. Be nice to each other. Stay safe. Talk to you later. Just Another Fanboy is a presentation of the Stephen or Else podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to feedback at stephenorelse.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash stephenrorr and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show about whatever crawls its way into my tiny little mind just moments before I tap record. You can find me on the World Wide Web at stephenorelse.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or else. I also encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave us a five-star review, and share this episode with a friend. Just Another Fanboy is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can find that over at comicspodcasts.com. All links will be in the show notes. Good job. Ooh.